Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be with you. And if you are a guest with us, I do want to give you a special welcome this morning. Uh, I know there's a handful of you here who are joining us for the first time. And so uh, we're just glad that you join us. If you brought your Bible, I want to invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, if you actually don't have a Bible, we've got a few people walking up and down the rows. And if you'd like to read along with us, just raise your hand. They'd be happy to give one of those to you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you. That is our gift to you. Seriously, take that. Uh, we'd be glad for you to have it. Um, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 35 this morning. Um, at Sojourn, we preach directly out of the Bible. And the reason for that is because we're persuaded that inasmuch as this book is accurately preached and taught, God himself is addressing us. And I'm praying that you hear his voice this morning. Um, so 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, starting in verse 35 is where we'll be. So I'm going to read this. We'll pray and then we'll get after it. Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. Nor not, for not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, then there's a spiritual body also. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's so good to gather uh, together as your people this morning. Um, and I just will now confess publicly what I've already confessed privately. Lord, this morning I need you. We've all sat through Sunday morning messages and had the words go in one ear and out the other. Or just some guy up there talking. But God, I pray this morning that for all of us gathered in this room, that your words would be life to us, God. And that you would do something that I can't do. And you'd make these words true. And that you would confirm them in the, in the ears of those who hear. And you would make them alive to them. Lord, you've been laid before us this morning as a life-giving spirit. And there's people this morning in this room who need you to be just that for them. So we just lift this time to you, God. I just pray for your aid. That you would bring these words home for those who have ears to hear, God. We love you and we pray all this in your son's beautiful name. Amen. 
Well, this morning I've been tasked with addressing something of a problem. It's really more of a crisis. It's a crisis that plagues 53 million people every year. And by the time I'm done talking this morning, it will have wiped out 6,000 more people across the globe. We've talked about it some through this, this series, but this morning it's going to be a little bit more personal. The problem that we have to address this morning is death. Death is probably the most unifying or common aspect of our existence as humans, and yet it's also the most unnatural aspect of our existence at the same time. We see it coming. We see it all around us. We know it's inescapable. You can't even turn on the news without hearing of someone's death. We see it all the time, and yet it's still so abnormal when we're confronted with it. Like, do you remember the first time you had an up-close confrontation with death? I was probably seven or eight years old. It was at the funeral of my grandfather. And uh, we had unfortunately known that he was going to pass for, for a little bit of time. He was even home um, on hospice in his last days. And uh, he passed away. And so we flew down to go to his funeral. And to be honest with you, I didn't have a super close relationship with him. And so uh, the news of his death was, was certainly saddening, but wasn't particularly earth shattering for me. And so I remember walking up to the viewing rather confidently. And as I looked down at his lifeless body, just being shocked, like, Something isn't right here. Something's gone wrong. This certainly isn't the way things are supposed to be. Death is so common. We hear about it all the time. We know it's coming. And yet there's something within us that knows this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Even through great advances in the medical world, extending life expectancy. As it relates to the loss of human life, we still don't know what to do with it. It's unnatural, it's hopeless, it's full of despair, and yet it's coming for every last one of us. Doesn't matter if you're young or old, if you eat exclusively organic, grass-fed, antibiotic-free meat, (laughs) pesticide-free, all-natural farmer's market vegetables. Doesn't matter if you have the athleticism of an Olympic athlete or exercise for you is just consuming like the plus size five guys version, which honestly, that is a workout if we're, if we're truthful about that. <laughs> it doesn't matter what vitamins you take, the amount of water you drink, the carbs you refrain from. It doesn't matter. The truth is within just a few short years, every last one of us will struggle for our last breath, be pumped full of chemicals and dropped six feet in the ground. And then that's it. And just as as an aside, like, what a delightful message I've prepared for you all this morning. (laughs) Like, the the leadership of Sojourn gets together. We're like, man, how can we really encourage and lift up our people? Well, let's all get them out of bed early on their day off. We'll cram them into a middle school cafeteria. And then we'll just have Will go up there and tell them that they're all going to (laughs) die. But I think it can actually be good to take a second and think about the reality of our death from time to time. To, to actually be, to reflect on how limited our days are and how our end will shortly come. Several places through the Bible even point to the fact of being cognizant of our eventual end helps us know how to wisely spend the few days that we have. But here's the thing. I think for many of us, particularly being a young church, I don't know that we think about death all too often. Unless you just finished binging on Walking Dead episodes on Netflix this weekend. Like, I don't know that you came to church this morning contemplating your own death. 
If you're like me, you try to box up the reality of our death, kind of set it aside, out of sight, out of mind. It's just uncomfortable, so we just try to ignore it. It's uncomfortable, so we try to ignore it. As one terminally ill cancer patient was asked in an interview, what has shocked you the most, knowing that your death is now imminent? She responded, the fact that everyone else thinks theirs isn't. And what that can do for us is begin to mess up the prior, our priorities and the things that we spend our time on. And so we just begin to spend our time on dumb things. And this is why Moses said in Psalm 90, Lord, teach me to number my days that I might gain a heart of wisdom. There's many of us this morning who are notionally aware of the fact that our days are limited. But because it seems like a distant reality, you spend little time considering what might come afterwards. And what, come after, what comes afterwards affects how we spend our life today. But maybe for others of you, when it comes to death, it's not something that you box up and set aside. But it's actually something that terrifies you. You think about it frequently. And it's paralyzing, even crippling to you. And even maybe another, of you, another group of you this morning that you certainly do dread the idea of your death, but life isn't something that you're particularly excited about right now either. There's people in this room sincerely suffering through something even as I speak. It could be chronic or debilitating pain, some kind of mental illness, depression, anxiety, maybe some form of illness plaguing your body, relational conflict, some sort of addiction. So for you, like not only is death daunting, but so is getting out of bed in the morning to live. Friends, the the sobering and bleak reality for every one of us this morning is that all of us will live lives infused with, with suffering to some degree or another. And then within a few short years, every last one of us will be dead. But here's my prayer for our church this morning. My prayer is that you will be infused with unshakable hope in the face of death because of the resurrection of Jesus. My prayer is to make as clear as I, as I can that because Jesus was raised from the grave, all who are united to him by faith will be raised with a brand new body too. Jesus has taken our impending expiration, the hopelessness, the ugliness, and dreadfulness of our death, and he's absolutely blown it to pieces. He's changed death from the ugliest part of our existence, and he's decisively transformed it forever, infusing it with confidence, hope, and the promise of an entirely redeemed existence. Friends, we can have unshakable hope in the face of death, Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And right out of the gate, let me just tell you how I want to break up our time this morning. As we just read, Paul is answering some questions that he anticipated in the Corinthian church's mind. And so I want to ask a few questions of our own. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. The first question that I want to ask as it relates to our passage is, why in the world is Paul so irritated? Why is Paul so irritated? Secondly, I want to ask, how are the dead raised? And lastly, What will the resurrection be like? Why is Paul so irritated? How are the dead raised? And what will the resurrection be like? So let's get after it in verse 15 here. If you've ever picked up 1 Corinthians, you find that Paul, all through the letter, is dealing with questions or objections that the church has raised to him. Just before before this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has confronted those in the church who didn't really think Jesus rose from the dead. 
He begins to make the case that Jesus really did rise out of the grave and the resurrection to Paul is central to everything that he preaches. And so as we approach our passage this morning, Paul's fielding another question about the resurrection in verse 45. He says, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Seems like a pretty innocent question. And Paul's response seems absolutely disproportionate. He's like, you foolish person, you fool, you idiot, more literally is what he's saying. It's like, dang, Paul, that's the last time I ask you a question about anything pertaining to the faith. Like, why, why is he just crushing somebody who seems to be asking a humble, honest question? It seems like they're doing what many of us do as we contemplate heaven. Like, hey, Paul, when, when we get to heaven, will we be able to fly? Will my dog Rover be there? Can I, can I walk through walls? Paul, I know there's not supposed to be death in heaven, but can we still eat meat? Like, that, that seems to be the mindset that, Paul, that, that they're asking Paul's question, and he just calls him a fool. But that's not what's going on in the mind that Paul is confronting here. It's not an innocent question, but something else entirely different. What has Paul so bothered this morning is what's going on behind the question. Behind the question of how are the dead raised is this. I don't understand how the dead can be raised. Therefore, it must not be true. They're really saying, I don't have a category for someone, how someone can come back from the dead. Therefore, I won't believe it. And honestly, that's pretty much the mindset that many of us gathered here this morning hold. I don't understand how the dead are raised. Therefore, it must not be true. And that's what has Paul so frustrated. They're saying, I don't have a category for this, so I won't believe it. And, and for many of you, the, the, the story of Jesus' resurrection is about as legitimate to you as a fairy tale. Perhaps something out of Greek mythology. You're essentially saying the same thing. I don't understand, therefore it must not be true. And can I just tell you what's confounding to me this morning about many of you who are in that place? Is that you reject the, the miracle of Jesus being raised from the grave as fairy tale, but you readily accept... Another miracle of equal proportion without question. What am I talking about? The ability for life of any form to exist is nothing short of miraculous. In a vast, chaotic universe with nothing but space and inanimate objects, for the simplest of life forms to be here is actually a statistical miracle. So for by chance to have a planet perfectly positioned, all of the physiological and biological parts to randomly come together under no guidance and to create the most simple of life forms is completely miraculous. Not only the possibility of life randomly starting, but we, we have a, a, a planet with life everywhere. So you're willing to accept Readily accept the miracle of dead, inanimate objects coming alive under no guidance, but an inanimate, ob an inanimate body coming back to life is just too much. You say Jesus coming back from the grave is impossible. But so is the forming of inanimate objects under no guidance, under, under no uh, provision. And what we're saying is that God is responsible for both. The message of the Bible is that God is the author of life. He thought of it. He created it and controls it. And if he so wishes, he can bring it back from the dead. 
Paul's confronting that mindset, saying, listen, don't be a fool. Whether or not you can grasp the resurrection or anything else that Jesus teaches is not the final arbitrator on whether or not it's true. And what's so helpful about Paul is that his message throughout his letters is constantly, listen, I didn't believe in the resurrection either. In fact, if you read Paul's story, you'll find that he hated those who talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He used to persecute them, try to kill them. But he says, I saw this Jesus. He came to me and I saw his real resurrected body. Me and 500 other dudes, we saw him and he's completely changed my life. The resurrection is real. This resurrection has become the center of everything Paul believed and everything Paul preached. And so maybe the simple takeaway for some of you this morning is it's just time to consider to begin to seriously consider the claims of this man, Jesus. This isn't an invitation to just close your eyes and ears and have some sort of blind faith. A lot of people mistake Christianity for being that. But it's an invitation to to seriously consider the claims of Jesus. And so we say frequently uh, at Sojourn that this is a safe place to do that. This is not a church exclusively for people with no doubts, no questions, no struggles. Actually, we welcome them And invite them because many of us sat in the exact same seats that you're sitting this morning with the same doubts and the same struggles. So we say all the time, wherever you happen to be on your spiritual journey, we'd love to walk along that with you. So jump in with us. And a great way to get started on that might just be simply to hang out with us for a while. Don't just check in and check out. Don't come back. Spend a few weeks with us. Consider this, the legitimacy of these claims. And even jump into a community group. Come and join us on one of the the weeknights and bring some of your questions to the the table there. Even you could jump in our basics to the faith class that's going on right now and begin to process through some of these questions there. Even for Christians in this room, maybe you struggle with the idea of physical bodily resurrection and so you push it aside. But Paul's invitation to us this morning is to see how the reality of a new body after the grave drastically changes how you live before it. So friends, we can have unshakable hope in the face of death because physical bodily resurrection is real. And if physical bodily resurrection is real, that would lead us to our second question. How are the dead raised? How after death are the dead raised? And the answer is this. Don't miss it. The dead are raised, we are raised from the grave through our union with Jesus Christ. We're raised from the dead through our union with the resurrected living Jesus. What Paul wants us to see here is that life after death and resurrection are a direct result to who you're connected with. His point is that God has wired the human race in such a way that we either receive death or life. From what he calls our representative. So having hope in death really has nothing to do with how decent of a person you were. If you were kind or hateful. If your good outweighs your bad. Or anything like that. Paul's showing us here that being raised from the grave has everything to do with who you're united with. Hope in death hinges on your representative. If you look down at verse 45, you see Paul uh, making this point. Last week, we, we, he was making a similar point in verse 21 when he said, For by death came through one man, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. And he's reiterating that point down here at verse 45. Let me read it. 
It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that it's first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So he's contrasting these two figures, showing that Adam was created first and he became a living being, but Jesus became a life-giving spirit and he hinges death on who, death and life on who you're connected to. And I know for a lot of you, this sounds like up in the clouds, really theological, hard for you to get your mind around. But if you're a parent, you see this idea of us sharing things from the person we're connected to all the time. Um, If you've ever hung around me for a little while, you probably noticed something a little bit strange in the way that I walk. Um, Ever since I can remember, I've walked on my toes. I just do. Uh, I guess I have tight calf muscles or something like that. It gives me a little, little extra pep in my step. And uh, growing up, uh, people could identify me from long distances, from my, from my unique cadence. Um, it was uh, unfortunately the cause of uh, teasing and mockery growing up, but that's for another day. Um, fast forward to, to present day, I have a little boy named Caleb. Uh, he was born three years ago. He, he starts sitting on his own. He starts crawling. He gets up, starts walking. What's the first thing I notice about how he walks? He walks on his toes. People are like, Will, like, have you seen Caleb walk on his toes? Are you concerned about that? Have you talked to his pediatrician? I'm like, no, I think it's awesome. Like, it's my, it's my boy. Like, any questions of, like, a switched at birth scenario taking place, like, are eliminated. Like, like he shares in that because he's connected with me. Another one. Caleb's three now. And uh, actually, if you've seen him, it's doubtful that you've ever seen him walk anywhere. Um, he is so excited and passionate about life. He runs everywhere, no matter where he's going. Like even he'll get out of bed at night, go use the bathroom and like run back to his bed out of excitement. Just like he has to get to the next thing. This like excessive, some would even call inappropriate at times, enthusiasm or passion about simple things at life. Some would say similarly to his dad. (laughs) Caleb walks on his toes. He has an unruly passion and many other interesting traits simply by nature of his connection with me. As a parent, you see all kinds of things being passed on to your child that you're united with. It's not even that they learn it from you. It's just in your DNA, so now it's in theirs. And so, to the question of how are the dead raised, the answer is, it depends on who you're united with. Because we either receive life or death from our representative. Either Adam who dies or Christ who was made alive. So how does Adam represent us? Well, God made him first back in the garden. He would be a representative for everyone else who would follow. God put him in charge of the garden and gave him one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it, Adam, because the day you do, you'll die. And Adam and Eve arrogantly disregarded God's word. And they introduced sin and death to the human race. So death wasn't natural. It wasn't the way things were supposed to be for humans. It's the result of sin against our creator. And the consequences of this were so severe that when Adam sinned, it brought death to every last one of us. Because we have a common bond with Adam, when he sinned, we as a a race died spiritually and will ultimately die naturally. We reap the consequences of the one we're united with. How does then Jesus represent us? 
Jesus comes on the scene. He lives a perfect life, the exact opposite of Adam. He lives as the ideal man, following God's commands without error, always loving God, always loving man, never doing wrong in any situation. And if you're united to Jesus, then even though you have a jacked up record, even though you still sin daily, God regards you as perfect like Jesus. As Adam passed on guilt to us, Jesus passes his perfection onto us as well. But not only that, Jesus was tried, punished, and executed like a guilty criminal. He was whipped so violently he wasn't even recognizable. Then he was pinned down to a dirty cross. And in doing so, God takes all our sin and he passes it on to Jesus. This satisfies the need for justice so that you can be brought to God having no record whatsoever of guilt. But what's this got to do with being raised from the dead? I don't know about you, but shortly after I became a believer, I began to just ponder all that was involved in God saving me. And I get the idea that Jesus had to live a perfect life because I have a messed up life that I could never bring before God and he passes that to me. I I get the idea that even my sin is so grievous that it required the death of a perfect substitute for me to be forgiven. But as it relates to the resurrection, why is that significant? Couldn't Jesus have just accomplished the first two things and ascended straight to heaven? Why did he have to come back from the grave? And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we're getting the answer to that question. Jesus had to rise from the grave so that all who were united with him could rise too. Just like we die because of our connection with Adam, we're raised because of our connection with Jesus. That means when Jesus rose from the dead to everlasting life, all who are united with him are raised too. And family, get this. You can have unshakable hope in the face of death this morning because when Jesus was raised from the dead, all who were united were raised too. Jesus' resurrection secures yours and mine. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus... You may be a lot of things, but connected to Jesus certainly isn't one of them. The truth of the matter is that death isn't a hopeful event for you. In fact, it's terrifying. When you die and you stand before the judgment seat of God and he has your full rap sheet where he can see every evil deed, every wicked thought, every shameful act you've ever committed, and he's ready to pronounce judgment on you, what hope will you possibly have in that day? The message of the Bible is clear that we'll all stand before God, and based on our own performance, every last one of us will stand condemned. But please hear me this morning. This doesn't have to be the case. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And he loves you so much that he took the punishment that was owing to you on himself. When Jesus dies on the cross, he did away with your sin. And when he was raised, he made available to you eternal life. And this Jesus is offered to you today. Will you take him? Will you believe that he died for you, that he rose from the grave, and that if you do, your sins are forgiven and you're welcomed to God just the way you are this morning? Then you too can have unshakable hope in the face of death because of your connection with Jesus.
So Paul starts out this passage this morning irritated because he wants you to know that physical bodily resurrection is real. He says that we're raised through our connection, our union with Jesus, which leaves us with one last question. What will the resurrection be like? That's the question of pressing on the minds of the Corinthian church this morning. They not only wanted to know how the dead were raised, but when we're raised, they say in verse 35, what kind of body will we have? And the answer in a word is glorious. Simply glorious. Look at what Paul does in verse 37. He takes something we're familiar with and he he uses that to explain what it's going to be like. Paul's like, you know how when you plant something, you just take a a boring, dead little seed, you put it in the ground, throw some dirt on it, and then what happens? In just a short period of time, it comes up as something beautiful. You just take a little kernel, throw it in the ground, and it comes up as an extravagant flower. For all who die in Jesus, that's what the resurrection is going to be like. You go into the ground with your broken body, And you come up glorious. And so what he begins to do is to contrast what goes in the ground with what's raised. He says, what's sown is perishable, but what's raised is imperishable. What's sown is dishonorable, what's raised is utterly glorious. What's sown is weak, but what's raised is given power. He goes on to talk about different kinds of bodies in verse 38. It's like just in the world of nature, there are different kinds of bodies, each fitting for their particular environments. So it will be with us. Just like birds have bodies fitted for flying and fish have bodies fitted for the water. Animals have different bodies for their given purposes. Even stars, he brings up, have an appropriate body for their particular environment. So we will have new bodies fitted for our resurrected state. When we're raised with Jesus, we're assigned a new body, and that body is absolutely glorious. What Paul wants us to know that the, this morning is that there's hope in death because we'll be raised to an entirely redeemed existence. Just like when you throw a seed in the ground and it comes up as a flower. And this is totally different from what you and I learned about the afterlife growing up from Saturday morning cartoons. You guys remember like someone like the Roadrunner, Tom and Jerry, a piano would fall on them, they'd fall over, there'd be X's on their eyes, and then some sort of like disembodied uh, spirit would raise from it, and there would be like an elevator that would go up to heaven, they would take that up to heaven, they'd be greeted by an angel and handed their heaven starter kit, which would uh, include like a robe, uh, like a a, a harp, and uh, you know, a halo, and they would spend all like eternity just playing a harp, like an eternal toga party, essentially, is what we learned about the afterlife. But the, res- but the resurrection will be nothing like that. There will come a day when we're given a new body, like Jesus was when he was raised from the grave. Just like we bear the image of Adam, so we bear the image of Jesus's resurrected body. Jesus's resurrected body is the prototype For what our resurrection will be like as well. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. 
We're going to be raised with a glorious resurrected body. And I know some of you are like, that's great, but like, can you be a little bit more specific? What is the resurrection really going to be like? And Paul gives us a few things here, starting in verse 42, that help us understand. He says in verse 42, our new bodies will be imperishable, incorruptible. We presently have bodies that are subject to decay, will be given bodies immune from corruption. That means no more sickness, cold, flu, stomach viruses, no more cancer, diabetes, no more heart attacks, no more mental illness, no more autism, no more dementia, no more Alzheimer's. Imperishable means that we'll be giving healthy, strong bodies forever. He says in in verse 43 that our bodies will be strong. As many of us are experiencing as we continue to to age, um, our, our, our bodies experience atrophy and even simple tasks become difficult to, to perform. But when we're raised, we will be raised with, with strong bodies that never experience the physical atrophy that we do right now. He says in verse 43 as well that our bodies will be glorious. A theologian described this aspect of our resurrected state that they'll no longer look dishonorable or unattractive but will be utterly glorious in their beauty. He goes on to say that there will be a kind of brightness or radiance that surrounds our being, which would only be fit for those who would rule with God for all eternity. Matthew 16, 43 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He says we'll have spiritual bodies. What what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're like a ghost or a non-physical being, but, but a body that's fully in tune with the Holy Spirit. Responsive to his guidance, free from sin. That means our incessant struggle with sin will be left in the grave forever. That means our impatience, our anger, our self-centeredness, our inability to love will be finished. Everything in us right now that struggles against God and our sin nature will be left in the grave and will be raised with new, perfectly righteous bodies. At the end of the day, we can say this. However you're envisioning the glory and the bliss of our resurrected body, you're underestimating it. You're underestimating it. What will the resurrection be like? Absolutely glorious. We can have unshakable hope in the face of death through the resurrection of Jesus because we'll be given new bodies that will live with our great God forever. For all who are in Christ, death isn't the end, but the beginning to something glorious. Let me wrap this up with a couple things that this means for us today. I know some of you are asking, like, this sounds awesome for the future, but like, does this, does this help me in any way today? Like, is there anything that's meaningful about this for my struggle today? And for one, the hope of a future resurrection infuses your life today with freedom, with purpose, and with meaning. But we're going to deal more with that next week, and so I hope you come back for that. But where, I want to hit, where this hits home for us this morning is for those of us in this room who are presently in the midst of suffering. I'm talking to people who are in the midst of a really rough go right now, and maybe it's been recent, or perhaps it's something that you've been dealing with for years. There are people in this room right now that have been battling depression or some other form of mental illness and you just don't know where else to turn. 
There are others that are battling some sort of serious bodily illness or injury, and you're just not sure at this point if it's ever going to get better. There are others of you, maybe you even have a loved one or a parent or even a child that's going through suffering. What I want to ask you this morning is, do you have any hope? In the midst of your suffering, do you have any hope? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have unshakable hope in the face of death, even in the face of suffering, because it guarantees it's not always going to be like this. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees us a redeemed future, and the truth of this future hope brings present power to endure. Paul writes another letter to the church in Corinth, and in chapter two, verse uh, chapter, uh, chapter four, verse sixteen, he says this to them. Paul, someone who is well acquainted with suffering, this, these are his words. He says, "We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away." Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in, this, in the heavens. And for this tent we groan. And in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Maybe God's word to you this morning is simply not to lose heart. To be reminded that this present affliction that you're going through is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. What God may have for us this morning is for us to be reminded that this isn't the way it's always going to be. There's going to come a day when we, when Christ returns, we leave this broken body in the grave and we're redeemed into an entirely new body with an entirely new world. And listen, this is why it's so important that we're living in the midst of gospel community through a local church. The question isn't whether or not you will suffer in this life. The question is, will you be surrounded by those who can tell you the truth about our future hope when you do? In Sojourn, we need to be a community that encourages one another with the real hope of our future. Where we tell each other the real hope of our resurrection, not just anecdotes or hallmark quotes. We need to be a community where we tell one another of the real hope we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. And listen, if there's something that you're going through this morning, and we can pray for you about that, we'd we'd love to. I'll be up here afterwards, and maybe a few others of of our leaders or community group leaders could come forward. We'd be happy to pray with you about that. But you can be encouraged this morning to have hope in the midst of your suffering because of the future reality of our resurrection with Jesus. And lastly, maybe not just for all of us that are suffering, but, but for all of us, we need to be challenged with something else. What I want to ask you is, do you long for this day? Do you long for this day or are you quite content with how things are right now? There's always, always a temptation as believers in Jesus to get a little bit too comfortable with our present state, isn't there? To have our eyes fixed on everything in this world rather than the next. But what I've found It's often the case is that God will use our suffering. 
to detach our affections from this present day and place them on the future resurrection. He uses hardship to transform our comfort in this present day into longings, longings for the future one. I have a really good friend. We've known each other for about 10 years and we got married at similar uh, times and then we we actually got pregnant with our first child for for, uh, the first time at similar times as well. And so it was really exciting being able to walk through the pregnancy together. Um, We went through that and then uh, January, three years ago, our son Caleb was born first. And then about a week later, their daughter was born with Down syndrome. Um, and uh, just being so close to me and just having our, even our pregnancies be so close together, like, it's just, it just rocked me, man. And I just didn't know how he endured. Um, but I want to read for you what he wrote just a couple weeks after wrestling through this really difficult time, watching his beloved daughter be born with this, um, with this uh, disability. This is what he wrote just a couple weeks after. He said, Oh God, have mercy on us that it would take a disabled human or a dying cancer patient for us to groan for your coming. For you to return and make all things wrong right. So we yearn for the hope we have at the resurrection, not only for Shiloh's sake, their daughter, but for our own. For we're all in need of healing all in need of wholeness. Jesus promises to return and to restore, to restore all things is all we have. Shiloh just gets to join in the longing that we've all been missing. Because of the hope we have in Jesus, the Lord used my friend's immense suffering to help him to place his hope in the future resurrection. And may God bring us all to long for the day when Jesus will redeem all that's broken in this sinful world and where we'll live to praise him forever. And Jesus has given us a means of grace to help us with that every single week. When Jesus was with his disciples on the last night, he instituted communion. And he brought out the bread and said, this represents my body that's going to be broken for you so that you can be accepted to God. And this cup of wine, this represents my blood that's going to be poured out for you. So every last one of your sins will be covered and seen no more. But then he said, "Um, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day I drink it with you anew in my father's kingdom. So as we take communion, there's a sense in which we look back and celebrate all that God has done in redeeming us. But there's also a sense that we look forward to a day when Jesus is going to right every wrong and we're going to sit down with him and we're going to enjoy this meal with him forever. So we're going to take communion this morning. And if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to kindly ask you that you just hang out in your seat during this time. Listen, that's, that's not to be exclusive um, or, or to make you feel left out. But for us, as we come forward to have communion, we're declaring something. We're declaring that we stake our lives on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe that, this is just bread and Welch's juice that we have for you. So we just kindly ask that you'd hang out in your seat. When you're ready, come forward and look forward to the day when we'll share this meal with Jesus anew in his kingdom. We'll have two tables in the back, two tables in the front. You can come forward whenever you're ready, break off a piece of bread, grab a cup, and uh, what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you.
Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we have unshakable hope in the face of death because of your resurrection. I pray you'd bring that hope to bear on those who are suffering this morning. I pray that we would cling to you all the more in light of this hope. Pray for those in our midst that don't know you. I just pray that you bring these words home to them. And even as we gather for communion, that you would just just speak to them. And as they even pray during that time, that you would would encourage them and just just lead them through this time. Lord, we, we love you. We long for your return. We thank you for the hope that we have because of your resurrection. We pray all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.